You're listening to the Northfield Radio Program, where faith, family, and culture all collide with the biblical worldview. There is a war that's raging for the hearts and the minds and the spirits of men and women. And you and I, as Christians, are on the forefront of that battle. The question is, what will you do? To find out more about the Northfield Radio Program and Caleb Gordon, go to www.calebgordon.com. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Northfield Radio Program. I'm so excited that you're here with me today. Man, on today's show, we've got an incredible guest. Stephen Black with First Stone Ministries is going to be on the program, and we're going to talk about his story, his testimony of how God's power through the gospel of Jesus Christ liberated and transformed him out of a life of homosexuality into a life that was passionately on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this conversation encourages you this week. Welcome to the Northfield Nation, Mr. Stephen Black. How are you doing, my friend? I'm good. Thank you. Great, man. So excited that you're here with us today. So for folks that don't know who you are, I would love to just sort of kind of, if you would give us a 30,000-foot view of who is Stephen Black and what do you do? Sure. Um, I'm uh, a director of a parachurch organization that offers pastoral care and discipleship to the sexually and relationally broken. I've been doing this kind of ministry work for over 30 years. Uh, I'm an ordained minister, and um, we comfort those with the same comfort that we ourselves have received, and so uh, one of my life verses is out of Second Corinthians chapter one, where Paul says, "Blessed be the God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ, who comforts those who have been afflicted," mm, and yeah. uh, and offering you know this incredible grace. Well, I was afflicted as a as a child. I was uh, sexually abused. That brought in a lot of confusion and brokenness. So by the time I was a teenager. Uh, I didn't think that I had any other option but to embrace a gay identity. I'd been bullied, beat up, and followed around, and, and uh, was told that uh, that I was gay. And so oh, by the time I was uh, an older teenager, I began to believe it, and, uh, and unfortunately had somebody that introduced me into the world of the gay community uh, in Oklahoma City, and this was back in the 70s. And so um, I uh, entered into that world for eight years. And then I had this radical transformative experience with Jesus Christ at the age of 22. So from 14 to 22, my most formative years of sexual development, I, I lived as a, as a gay man mm-hmm. and uh, was kind of a boy toy. And it was a very dark, dark world. And uh, But uh, Jesus... Um, uh, in the middle of um, a, a great tra- tragedy in our family, uh, calling out uh, to him for truth, uh, my little brother died at age 18, almost 19, in the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, that set me into this place of wanting to know um, about eternity. And so I cried out to the Lord for a year and a half, and then at age 22, uh, I had this um, amazing, radical, transformative experience. And uh, I've never been the same. And so for the last, going on 36 years, 37 years, I've, I've been following the Lord fully. And that's, uh, that's kind of that, that big picture. 
Wow, that is that's incredible. So I want to try to get a get a feel because man, right now we just came off of Pride Month, and it was, I mean, every it was in your face everywhere. How do how does the church how how should the church minister to folks in the LGBT community? Well, that's a that's a great question, and that there are different steps that should uh, start taking place within a community of believers. Um, of course, the buy-in needs to start with the uh, the senior pastor of most churches. If if the senior pastor isn't behind something in a community of believers, um, it's not going to become something of a you know a ministry of the church. And so that's at the community level, at the church level, that, that needs to happen. Um, and if that does happen, it should begin, you know, of course, with the leadership of the church, uh, being able to deal with their own uh, secret world of uh, potentially sexual sin or places of weakness, and putting that all in a, into a place of, you know, real good, healthy, holy accountability and boundaries. And talk about it. Bring it into the community where, you know, uh, the church has done a really poor job at uh, dealing with sexual issues. And, you know, we are sexual beings. God has created us with the, with the gift and the propensity to desire sex. Yeah. And so the church at large really needs to do a better job at doing that. Um, just at the, the local level in, you know, what would be heterosexual sexual sin, and, um, you know, helping marriages to, to stay intact, uh, dealing with, um, you know, uh, serial adultery and uh, people living together outside of the covenant of marriage. And then from that place, then they can, you know, help people that are dealing with uh, great levels of confusion in their sexual identity. Yeah. And usually that starts off with people that have been introduced to uh, pornography at an early age. They've had. Um, I'm glad you're touching on this because that was. Abuse. Yeah, this this that was one of the questions I, I had was, how do you think pornography plays into the, to the role of introducing people to the idea of being uh, in the in the homosexual lifestyle? So that was one of the questions. So if you yeah, go ahead and touch it's, on that. It's huge, actually. Um, I've I've never met anyone that I've done pastoral care with that did not have some kind of graphic sexual information given to them uh, prepubescent. Mm. Uh, most of the guys that I've ministered to, which I mainly minister to men, um, have had some high 90 percentage. Um, not every single person, but high 90 percent, and then about 55 to 60 percent of the men were sexually molested mm. as boys. Yeah. And that's higher with the females. Wow. So, you know, pornography plays a huge role when we now even have latest statistics of men in the church that are church-going um, have about 70% have problems with porn on a weekly basis. So yeah. this is a huge problem in the church, and we need to deal with it. And, and the... And the thing is we've it's so now readily accessible we have it i mean we can get it right to our phones and, and we have right. a, we have access to this junk 
24-7. There's no, I mean, whereas, you know, when, when we were younger, I mean, I'm, I'm 40. When I was a kid, if I wanted to look at that kind of stuff, I had to try to, you know, find a magazine somewhere or do something of that, of that nature. Uh, but it's it's readily available. And, and guys as young as like seven are, are seeing this stuff. And um, one of the things that I, I it's just, it, how do, how did the church how did what or, or let me just let me rephrase this what did the church do to help you or maybe hinder you in the beginning i mean because you 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 said you were all through your you know a bulk of your teen years you were engaged in homosexuality how did the church see you how did they how did they work with you well you know it was an amazing situation un, unlike many places but i would say some of the core principles uh, need to be, um, you know, uh, continued to, to be multiplied in the church, and that is, is that I had a pastor who was full of humility and that he handled this, and he, he actually said, you know, I've never met anyone that was gay or homosexual at the time, and uh, he said, but, you know, it's not like uh, any other uh, problem that, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ can't bring healing and freedom to, and yes, I believe him. Yes. And he uh, he didn't even know it, but he actually ministered to some of the root problems that we see as as far as causality in young men is that they need solid, healthy uh, male figures in their lives that can mentor them, and that's exactly what he did. Uh, he spent an awful lot of time uh, with me. Uh, of course, I was really hungry for the Lord, and uh, because of that, it met so many other needs, relational needs, um, and I was able to have a loving relationship with a man who wasn't wanting to, you know, use me as a as an object of sexuality. Mm. And so that that was a pretty huge deal. A lot of men in the church uh, do not realize that that gay boy, you know, or that you know uh, that. You know, and they even call themselves queer, but the way that the church has been derogatory, you know, say that that queer person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, you know that they they actually need uh, the love of a father, or um, really that mentoring of identity and who they are as uh, as males. Yeah. Amen. I, I've I, and I. I've been doing men's ministry now for almost twelve years, and I I believe one hundred percent that if we can get healthy men to invest in young men boys it will it truly transforms the church and not just the church but but the community at large uh, so so huge um, okay so question on this uh, the and this is something that that a lot of people have you know they, they want to go back and forth on it and we can we can talk you know I, I'll give you my thoughts as well but are people born gay? Well, we actually have the science on this. People are not born gay as far as a genetic uh, link or DNA disposition. The, the entire human genome has now been mapped, and conclusively, people that are a lot smarter than me uh, that actually understand the genetics say there is no gay gene. Now, having said that, uh, there is still some science that may or may not point to uh, within utero uh, that the um, uh, the endorphins or the hormones 
in the brain may give a propensity, a personality, uh, of what we would call the feminine side in the males or the masculine side in females to a disposition or predisposition towards, uh, you know, uh, in males to be uh, gentler, softer, more um, what we would uh, say are the, you know, the emotional, artistic, sensitive types. And in females, the leadership, you know, strong and, um, you know, what we would say are the masculine side. So the science on that is real iffy. It's kind of out, really out there. And even if they were, like even years ago before the genetic um, uh, map was made, we used to always emphasize that even if they did find a recessive gene or some kind of a, a genetic link to homosexuality, that doesn't change the scripture in the way that we handle sin. Exactly. In that we live in a fallen world. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, you know the, the answer is no, no one is born gay, but there can be nurture uh, environmental factors that do bring about a predisposition your homosexuality. Yeah, and that and my my thought on that is I heard a guy named Matt Chandler uh, talking on this issue, and he said, "Man, our, our world was fractured at the fall, and there was a a complete shattering of everything. I mean, nature, I mean, you name it, it 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 got torn apart. And at the fall, there isn't you know even there might may have been even may have even been." Um, a, a something that was broken in our orientation. So therefore, sin is still the, the issue, is still the reason why we make war on sin. I mean, a lot of guys have a predisposition to sleep with beautiful women. And is that healthy? I mean, if just you see any any beautiful woman on the street, is that is that healthy to do that? that that's the question. And the answer is no, it's not healthy to, to run after and do those kind of things. We, we have a a mandate and a, con- a construct set up by God Himself as to how we should carry out sexual activity, and that's in the confines of marriage. So uh, that's—I mean—that was just—you uh, you answered that correctly. So I—I I, I wanted to—I was hoping you were going to say that. So <laughs> it's well, and the, the, here's part of the wrestle that's happening with the APA and the influences of psychology is the the normalization of this idea of orientation. Or desire, and the Bible is actually really clear about this in the fall, that our desires or and quote you know orientations um, are broken, and uh, and there's no legitimacy in something that is unnatural or inordinate. Now there is a natural desire for man to want woman, that is God given. Um, the the part about homosexuality and or pedophilia or other sexual dysfunctions is there is an unnaturalness. There is a, a, a thing that is uh, very broken, and when we start unpacking it pastorally, we, we see that there are some causalities to the way a person has been raised and environmental factors that need to be unlearned, they need to, to grow in their identity, and, and, of course, that would be true of a sexually broken man um, in, you know, needing to be a one-woman man. Mm, yeah, uh, but yeah. um, um, this other unnatural aspects have to do with some causalities and some things that are broken 
within the soul, a part of the fall, but also uh, some things that were left out usually in a person's life in their development or added to, like sexual abuse. Yeah. And so learning that history is very helpful in, in understanding uh, that people really do recover, and they don't have to have a quote-unquote orientation that's gay or call themselves a gay Christian, which that's what the church is really being hit with now, is this whole idea of LGBTQ plus Christianity, which yes. I, I beg to differ. Um, God doesn't want us to, to take on a broken, sinful identity and put it before Christ. That, that was that was one of the questions I was gonna ask is we see I see this huge push and you've you've mentioned this this huge push of Christian or of churches and people saying listen I, I am a I am gay but I am also a Christ follower and I I just I struggle with this idea because the scripture is very plain very very bold in this that that homosexuality is a sin. And, and I'm not sure how you can reconcile the two. So is, is that, I wanted to try to speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm addressing that all the time and uh, doing teaching on that, uh, unpacking it. And it gets, it gets back to a fundamental principle of believing in the Word of God. Uh, does the grace of God actually instruct us to deny ungodliness? and to live righteously and godly in this present life, Titus 2, 11, 12, uh, because that's what the Bible says. And, and does grace uh, give, a, give us a pathway to continue in sin? Uh, Romans 6 says, you know, that God forbid, how shall we continue in sin because of the grace of God? Um, and so, you know, it, there is a, a, a mindset of psychology that has come into the church under this banner of orientation and some false teachings of grace, uh, antinomianism, which is hyper-grace, uh, that on the other side of this, you're, you're coming out with this thing called the gay Christian, and, uh, and that it's okay to have this, um, you know, this influence of orientation and mix Christ with it, and it's just not biblical. Um, they're downplaying the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God lived out when the Word of God can come in, like Jesus said it's in the parable of the sower of the seed is one of the most important parables that you read, and that is the very DNA of Jesus comes inside of us through the seed of God's Word that brings transformation. Yeah. And if that's not happening, a person should even find out if maybe they're not even saved. Maybe they haven't had a rejuvenating experience of the Holy Spirit. Uh, because if you're saved and you have that going on, then you hate the identity that is connected with sin, not embracing it. And so I've been, you know, proclaiming and preaching and teaching and tying those things together. The gospel of Jesus, like Paul said to Timothy, if it's not a gospel conforming you to godliness, you have to wonder if maybe you're you're hearing a wrong gospel message. Amen. Amen. Your life. Yeah. Okay. So I, I wanna I wanna shift gears a minute. Uh, you're you're married. Um, it looks like your wife's name is Robin. Can you? T I want you to tell me how you guys met and how you knew she was the one for you. Well, it was a it's a bit of an uh, extra out of the ordinary experience. Um, there was a 
Southern Baptist Church I was uh, going to that was actually experiencing uh, a revival, a real revival, and, and literally uh, in the uh, late or early uh, 80s, right at the end of, of 79 and between 79 and 81, there was this uh, movement in the Southern Baptist called the Fullness Movement. And, and during that time, uh, people were praying and, and saying, you know, we're going to believe the entire counsel of the Word of God. Well, this little TP church uh, out on 178th and MacArthur in Oklahoma City uh, was experiencing this revival. And uh, I had actually prayed with this guy who came out of homosexuality. He was a friend of my wife. Uh, not wasn't my wife, but, you know, this lady named Robin and uh, actually brought her to church, and I had been at a, um, uh, at, at a teaching of inner healing, deliverance, freedom, power of the Holy Spirit conference in, in Texas. Uh, matter of fact, James Robinson was a part of that, and uh, had drove to church that night, and I met my wife, and uh, uh, I knew immediately when I saw her she was going to be my wife. I told my pastor, and he said, Brother, you need to hide that in your heart. You know, it was like, you know, it was kind of <laughs> radical. But it's like, yeah, but I just knew she was going to be my wife. And uh, and so um, a few weeks later, uh, we were actually at a James Robinson crusade, and, uh, and my wife heard the same thing. And so we immediately started doing what we believed back in that day was called courtship. And we believed about bringing our relationship before the elders and before spiritual leaders to see if God would have us uh, come together. And uh, long story short, uh, a year and a half later, we were engaged and got married uh, six months after that. So three years into my walk, which I wouldn't, uh, you know, recommend. I think, you know, it usually takes a good three to five years of coming out of homosexuality that a person should consider even getting married to the opposite sex, uh, but the Lord thrusted me into that, mm. and uh, and Robin and I've been married for thirty three years. Awesome! That's so that's so incredibly awesome. So when you what did the, what was the conversation like when you told her? Listen, I I came out of I I mean I used to be gay. Uh, how did that? Yeah. What how what was her reaction? Well, you know, she had come out kind of a, you know, even at the time it was a bit of a, a chaotic world of sexual sin and brokenness. Uh, Robin wasn't raised in the church. I was raised as a Catholic and parochial school and all that, so there was some shame in my world about yeah. that. But yeah. um, she just accepted me for who I was, and because the Lord had already spoken to her that I was to be her husband and the father of her uh, daughter that she had out of wedlock, uh, which is our oldest now. I've got a 38-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the reality is is that she just knew, and we both knew. And because of this revival movement, I mean, the people involved in the church and, and our environment, we were on fire for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it just it was like all the pieces came together very quickly. Yeah. And so she wasn't freaked out by my sexual sin and and passed, she knew I was completely surrendered to Jesus, and she saw the fruit in my life. And so she was very safe and secure in that. So good. So, so it's, it's beautiful to hear that because you've got two different people who are living two different sexual lives were intersected by the, the power of the gospel, and both 
were transformed. You, you had your, your wife who was heterosexual and, and active there, and you, you were homosexual and you were active, and the gospel came in and literally changed your, both of your hearts, is what it sounds like to me. Oh, it, it, it was radical. It was, it was not like what you see right now unless, you know, there's a, a real community of people that are just on fire for the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a bit of an unusual time in uh, the history of the church. Uh, there, you know, it's documented there were literal miracles during that time. Yeah. Um, and people saw un- very unusual things, even to this day. I, I still, in my three years, my first three years of Christianity, I saw things that people, when I start saying, you know, legs grew, and people who, who were deaf, you know, just completely from, from birth, you know, they got their, their hearing back, and people that were crippled were made completely whole. People don't believe it, and yet I saw it with my own eyes. And, and so I've been ruined for God, and unfortunately I have not seen those kind of miracles in the last 25 years of my life. I uh, would love to see them. I've seen some things, but, you know, so we were, we were in a bit of an unusual circumstance in the church. Uh, in church history, um, and you know, cherish those years and want to see some of those things happen again, which I believe we will. Well, I, I'll I'll contend with you here that that I believe firmly that that the work that you're doing that those you're seeing miracles when you see men <laughs> when you see women yeah. coming out of you know being brought back to life for, that were spiritually dead. I mean, I'll contend. You, I mean, we're seeing miracles. Oh, people always oh, say that. Oh, I have. I have. I have. You know, we we did a survey uh, several years back uh, because uh, with the uh, Exodus implosion, Alan Chambers announcing to the world that nobody changes, and that was ridiculous because I knew better. Yeah. I'd already by that time, and it already had, you know, twenty something years of of experience with ministry, and we did a survey of 25 years of client folders to find out where people were. And the bottom line of it is 72% of people's lives were changed. And uh, more than 25% of those people don't even struggle with same-sex attraction. And so the idea that people's lives don't radically change, that's just a lie. Yep. Uh, they do. The gospel changes people. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says that the, the gospel has power to transform. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. So... Um, okay, so Stephen, you're going to be in town, um, Bartlesville, this weekend at the Humility event. Excited that you're going to be a part of uh, this event. You're just going to you're going to share your testimony with with the crowd that's there, and uh, I'm looking yes. forward to that. Um, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or find out more about what you're doing, where do they need to do that at? Well, they can go to our website. It's First Stone, like let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And it's all spelled out, firststone.org, and we have a contact form, and they, they use that contact form. Or they can call the ministry at um, 405-236-4673, or what is 236-HOPE, and uh, area code 405. And uh, we're here pretty much Monday through fi- Friday, full-time ministry. Mm, praise the Lord. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for being on the program today. Would you dismiss us in prayer as we get out of here? Yes, I would love to do that. Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that every listener 
that has uh, heard this program or that will hear this program, we ask uh, that the first thing that they would have the anchor of their soul, hope. Hope in you, hope in what you have accomplished on Calvary's cross. Hope to believe for, for more, for wider, for broader, for deeper. Hope for loved ones that are stuck in sexual sin or brokenness, that they would be able to uh, find the relief of your and the comfort of your words. Uh, people do change. So we ask in Jesus' name, uh, wider, broader, deeper fruit to be made manifested uh, by the, the hearing of this story in Jesus' name. It is for your sake and glory that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.